afternoon and welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the second program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about small state bias in the federal government. Is this democracy? Compared to their population, rural states are overrepresented in the federal government, from the U.S. Senate to the Electoral College, hence the Supreme Court, and possibly even in the U.S. House. How has this come about? How far can it go? How does this overrepresentation of rural states affect Maine, which is in fact a rural state itself? If rural states rule, why do rural states not feel like they're thriving? And where is all this heading and what can be done about it? This show was pre-recorded on February 15th. Send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guest for today. Mark Brewer has been on our show a couple times or more before. Mark is a professor and interim chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine. So happy to have you back, Mark. Thank you, Ann. And Alex Cesar. Alex is the Matthew W. Sterling, Jr. Professor of History and Social Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. We're delighted to have you here as well. Alex, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's get started. Alex, I want to put the first question to you, real estate bias. Describe the problem and how it presents itself in the 21st century. Well, I, I, th I think the... Uh, I think I think that there are two key features. There are other features as well, but there are two key features. Um, one is uh, one is the Senate, and I, I think I want to make a distinction here also between rural state and small state. Um, I think one thing we have to keep in mind is that you know, for example, when you think of agriculture and rural areas, um, the, you know, the, the the greatest agricultural state in the in the United States is California, which is also an, an urban state, but Going back to the to the center of this, the, the core the core problem is the Senate from my from my, from my perspective. Each state gets two uh, senators, no matter how large it is. That was part of the deal at the outset when they wrote when they wrote the Constitution, and it means that uh, the minority of people who um, live in uh, smaller states control the Senate. I mean, it's really quite that simple, and we have a lot of legislation that has passed. A lot of things uh, or a lot of legislation that is blocked by senators representing 25, 30 percent of the population. The second feature which follows directly from that is the distribution of electoral votes in the Electoral College, um, where uh, each state gets um, an extra, basically gets a number of, of electoral votes that equals the number of members in the House that it has plus the number of members of the Senate. So each state gets an added two. The, the House of Representatives proportion is proportional to population, but then two. So you get the number of voters per electoral vote is very skewed. Um, what this does, in effect, is to give uh, disproportionate power uh, to states uh, to states that have relatively small populations, many of whom are rural, but that's not. You know, it's it's also Rhode Island and Delaware, 
Um, we should keep that in mind. Mark, how does that play out in the Supreme Court? Because, you know, you see discussed in the news, 37% of the population in the Senate, a majority on the Supreme Court. Well, I think, I think you know, if it plays out the Supreme Court, and I would, I would agree with Alex that the primary concern, for me at least on this front, is the Senate, right? I mean, the Senate is the, is the overwhelming concern in the overrepresentation of small states. And I do think the Electoral College concern is directly related to the Senate. So if you solve, if you think this is a problem, if you address the Senate, most of the rest of it, not all, but most of the rest of it would follow. Um, but if you want to connect it to the Supreme Court, it's also through the mechanism of the Senate, right? Because the Supreme Court uh, has to confirm uh, Supreme Court nominees that the president puts forward. And given that uh, small states have a disproportionate uh, amount of control in the Senate, um, that then there gives them a disproportionate amount of control in the justice confirmation process. And does you were talking about small states, rural states, and um, you know that not all small states are rural and so forth. But what what about race and racial diversity? Does this breakdown have a racial dimension? What, what would you say about that, Alex? Well, I think I think. Um... Look, the racial distribution of the population in the United States is extremely uneven. Um, and there migration north of African-Americans from the south has gone has gone to a bunch of of, uh, of states. But basically, that population is in the cities of certain states in the north, in, 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 the, in the in the upper right quadrant of the, you know, of the map of New York. And, but a majority of the black population, I think this is still true. Mark may know otherwise, but I think a majority of the African-American population still lives in the South. Those tend to be medium-sized states um, and, you know, have, represent, have a representation that is not skewed by size, although there are other skews there, which we might want to talk about. Um, but then you do have a bunch of uh, a bunch, of, you know, a group, a cluster of states that have very small minority populations um, and that are more rural. And again, that wield a lot of power um, in the Senate. I, let me pick up on my own cue about the about with, with African-American populations also is that um, the fact is that uh, in the South, African-Americans, 10, I mean, this is the dominant pattern, it may be shifting in some ways, to live in states where there are white conservative majorities. Um, that, that means, for, you know, for example, if you were an African-American person living in South Carolina um, and you were 60 years old or 70 years old, you would not, your state would not, and, and South Carolina's black population is about 25, 30 percent of the population, um, you would never have seen an electoral vote from South Carolina go to a Democrat. Mm -hmm. with, with the Electoral College putting more emphasis on what we call swing states, you know, that which ones are going to swing the electoral vote, does that kind of put pressure on voter suppression in the swing states, do you think? Like, are more voter suppression activities taking place in those states? Yeah, no, no, it's a very important point, and the, the fact is, and it's not, it's not the Electoral College per se that does the it's the way in which it operates through winner take all. Winner take all. The saying that you know all of Maine actually Maine is one of the exceptions, right? So you, right. Um, but the, all of that, the, you know, all of Massachusetts 
electoral votes go to one candidate who 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 wins the popular vote, and that's and that's the norm uh, in the United States. That is not in the Constitution. That was not the way it worked originally. the The adoption of winner take all was something that evolved out of party competition between the 1790s and the 1830s. And it's an insidious feature of the practice of presidential politics for a number of reasons, but one of which you have alluded to, which is that it provides an incentive for basically for voter suppression or disenfranchisement. The way the Electoral College is structured, the number of electoral votes that a state gets has nothing to do with the number of people who turn out to vote. It has to do with its population. And that's not going to change. I mean, you could take, you know, an extreme example. They take the example of the South before 1960, where there was massive voter suppression. Um, a third uh, or more of the population could, uh, could not vote, but it didn't affect the number of electoral votes that a state gets. And in current circumstances, um, if you uh, if you really want to win Pennsylvania or, you know, or Wisconsin um, and you think you can do that by making it more difficult for some folks to vote, there is no distance. There's a big incentive to do that because you can win a whole block of electoral votes, not just a tiny increment. Wisconsin is my home state, so that is kind of an example that's dear to my heart. Have you followed what's gone on there, Mark? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, and Wisconsin is not, not the only state. There's a number of others. You know, I think it's, it's, you know, to build off of Alex's point, voter suppression isn't necessarily in and of itself a product of the Electoral College. I mean, really, in, in, in virtually any electoral system that you can think of, there's going to be an incentive there for some party or parties to engage in voter suppression, right, or disenfranchisement. There's always going to be that incentive. What does happen as a result of the Electoral College is be, because of the winner-take-all nature in 48 of the 50 states, it it kind of raises the stakes or heightens the incentive for, for engaging in that disenfranchisement or suppression because it allows you rather, and I think Alex you know, pointed this out, rather than getting you know, a small bump in support uh, for your efforts at disenfranchisement, you can potentially get a much bigger chunk of an increase in support by suppressing the vote of your opponents. So it's something that I guess it's like the Electoral College heightens the, the incentive. It doesn't create it. It just, it just sharpens it, I think. Yeah. Um, and in Wisconsin is certainly a, an area where we've seen this happen, um, but it's not the only one. I mean, we can we can pick out dozens of states uh, over the last decade plus that have engaged in, in various disenfranchisement or suppression tactics. And then if we want to just include the number of states that have considered them in, the, in their state legislatures, the number goes up even higher. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, back to the conversation then, you know, we did a show on D.C. statehood and how much of the dynamic behind this electoral college and the U.S. Senate and stuff is what's getting in the way of making D.C. a state and enfranchising those D.C. voters. Well, I mean, you know, I mean I'm mean, i not sure exactly who you're addressing the question to, but Mark and I probably would have the same answer. Anyway, um, anyway it's a uh, Look, D.C. statehood is about race. It's about race and partisanship. I mean, that's really 
You know, if D.C. becomes a state, you know, at least in current conditions and in the foreseeable future, that means you're going to have two black Democratic senators added, added to the mix and the and, and likely liberal Democratic senators. Democrats love that prospect. Uh, Republicans are not thrilled by it. This is this is but this is a long drama that's been going on for a long time. You know, and it's also not it's not the first time in U.S. history that the question of admission of a state has had uh, has been part of partisan conflict, but it's there is something there is something disturbing about this in part because of the racial dimension. You want to add to that, Mark? As Alex uh, assumed, I, I agree. I have the same viewpoint on that. I mean, and, and I think do think it's important to point out, as he also noted, that statehood questions, at least since the eighteen twenties and thirties, have hinged. Maybe not exclusively, but overwhelmingly on partisan divisions and, and what the admission of a state or the failure to do so would do to the the balance of power between the parties. So um, the D.C. component or the D.C. question does have a, a race based element to it. But partisanship is always uh, front and center when we're talking about the admission of a, a new state. I want to talk more about that when, after the station break. But before I go to the station break. Let me ask you, how has this whole dynamic with the Senate, especially with the Senate, made it difficult for us to govern ourselves? You know, we can't get the policies that most people in democratic society want because the Senate is a veto point for so many of them. What do you think, Alex? Made it more difficult for us to govern ourselves? Yes, there are important issues, maybe you could say critical issues, in which, uh, regarding which we, we, we have not been able to make uh, to make progress. Uh, I mean, you know, that we have, we have this artificial debt ceiling uh, crisis, you know, looming right now, but, uh, you know, the difficulty that that we've had dealing with climate change, although there's been there's been some progress, the difficulties that we have in really modernize and extending our educational system. There are members of Congress from conser- conservative areas who block, who are, who are blocking things from happening that, you know, things that you couldn't even consider. I mean, one of which, let me, you know, let's, let's talk about governing ourselves would be consideration of reform of the electoral college. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, the electoral college really can't be very decisively reformed without a constitutional amendment. And a constitutional amendment requires the two-thirds vote in each branch of Congress. And right now, because of the skew uh, in the Senate, uh, it, it would be extremely unrealistic to think that we could get a constitutional amendment passed. So that to the extent that you think that our democratic institutions have to evolve as our society changes, uh, as our society you know, alters itself and we need a newer electoral system, we're frozen into being unable to do that because of the ability of a, of a minority to block any legislation. You're tuned to Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is small state bias in the federal government. Is this democracy? Our guests this afternoon are Alex Kazar, Matthew W. Sterling, Jr., Professor of History and Social Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, and Mark Brewer, Professor and Interim Chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine. This program was pre-recorded on February 15th. No listener calls are being taken today. I wanted to ask you before we turn the page on 
you know, how this is working and how it's getting in the way of our self-governance. Just to talk a little bit about what do we know about whether the House also um, tilts rural for conservatives? Well, I mean, I think you're right. There is, there's no doubt that there's a, a small state advantage in the House as well. It's nowhere near the scale that it exists in the Senate. But if you're going to require at least one representative per state, which is what we require, for for small states, the likelihood that they get more representation than they would be entitled to based on their population is pretty likely. So there's a there's a small state bias in the House too, but it's not nearly to the level of, of the Senate. That doesn't mean that it's not problematic. I mean, uh, you know, Alex, before the break, Alex was talking about the potential to reform the Electoral College and need a constitutional amendment. Well, you're certainly not going to get a two-thirds vote uh, in the United States Senate, but you're not going to get one in the House of Representatives right now either. Is that driven by small state bias? In part, it's not the primary, not the primary reason, but it's definitely there too. Um, I think that one's more difficult to solve if you were looking to solve it, but it's certainly there. Mm-hmm. Now, this system, and let's just talk about the, go back to the Senate for a second. You know, this system of two per state has kind of held together for two centuries. I mean, we, I want to talk about how the founders decided that the Senate should be this way, but what, why did it sort of kind of half work for so long or didn't it? Well, I think we need to, to, be careful to say that it worked for so long. I mean, it, it continued to function, right? And 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 we continue to function now. So, if you, if that's your definition of work, then yes. That being said, there's always uh, there's always been complications introduced in our system because of the over representation uh, or the the unequal representation that is produced by the United States Senate. There have been greater opportunities for workarounds at different points in American history because during previous eras, we've had a number of periods where one party has had a significant enough advantage over the other that their edge in the Senate has allowed them to overcome, um, or maybe their edge was because of the overrepresentation of small states, but they've been able to, it's been able to be less of a, of a, of a veto point or a pressure point blocking things from getting done. Right now, we're at such a closely divided political place uh, that anything that anything that that um, increases kind of disproportionate representation is going to be more of an obstacle than it has in previous eras. Because we're so closely divided, Alex, I saw, I heard you chuckle a little bit when I said it's worked so long, or has it worked? I guess you, you're thinking maybe it hasn't worked so great. Go ahead. It's an interesting question about whether you think about the durability of institutions as as signs of the really working or not, or 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 the failure of abilities to to change it. I mean, also, you know, we we have to remember we had a civil war. That 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 was that was that that was an example of democratic institutions not working, and 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 it's a it's a it's a it's a huge example. So, and did it work? I think if you asked African Americans who lived in the South. Not only before the Civil War, but from 1890 to the 1960s, um, you know, did it work? Well, I think, think they would say, you know, they, they, they would say, no, it didn't work. So I think I think we have to be careful to say, you know, I mean, yes, the country has not, you know, not completely decayed. Democratic values until quite recently seem to have been widely embraced. I want to add one one other element to to our discussion about this, or or, or two elements to this. One is that. 
American politics and American ideologies have been shifting, you know, sh- shift all the time. For example, we shouldn't assume that these thinly populated rural white states, which we now associate with being very conservative, you know, in a lot of the country, were always very conservative. You know, the liberal leader of the Senate, um, Mike Mansfield, in the 1960s, 1970s, was from Montana. North Dakota and South Dakota used to be bastions of a kind of labor, you know, progressive populism. And, you know, West Virginia used to be an overwhelmingly liberal democratic state. Um, so we, we, you know, we, we, I don't think the association between rural and largely white and conservative is not one that we should assume is fixed forever. And in that regard, and, and as you know, and as long as I'm delivering the speech here, um, you know, we, when we talk about, say, the difficulty, the impossibility or the difficulty of changing the electoral college, okay, most people don't know, and it's become part of my mission through the book that I wrote about the electoral college, you know, the we came very close to eliminating the electoral college in 1969-70. The House approved the constitutional amendment by an 82% vote. Uh-huh. And a distinctive majority of the Senate um, was also in favor of it. And it was killed by a filibuster led by Southern senators uh, in, uh, in, the, in the Senate. So, you know, again, these things where you start thinking, well, eternally, it'll never happen. Mm, came very close once. Now, that's no guarantee it could happen again, but things are pretty fluid. Well, and I mean, this this idea of two per state, Mark, I mean, that has its historical origins in the South, too, doesn't it? Yes, in the South and, and in the division between small and, and large states at the convention, right? I mean, there was the plan going into the convention was not, um, you know, by, by Madison and supporters of the Virginia plan was not necessarily to have two per state or any equal number per state, right? I mean, Madison's plan was to have representation in the Senate um, established proportionally, the same way that it was done in the House. And that was a non-start. And, and let's remember, Madison is a slaveholder. He's a delegate there from a southern state. But for the small states, that was a non-starter for them. And and they had the advantage, right? Because, you know, under the plan that was in place, the Articles of Confederation, it was one vote per state. You could certainly make the argument, as a number of the smaller state delegates did, that the Constitutional Convention in and of itself was um, against the rules of the Articles. And so really, the, the two per state was a key way in which to get around these small state, large state difficulties at the convention. I mean, whether you think the compromise was great or not is a, is a normative question. But without that kind of a deal, it's hard to see how it was going forward. Now, did did that also benefit slaveholding states? Uh, sure, it did. But it's a, it is important to remember that, you know, Virginia was a slaveholding state, but it was also a large state, and they were not insistent on equal representation in the Senate. In fact, they wanted proportional representation. What do you say about that, Mark, in the, in the founding and whether race was a factor then um, as it is now? Is, is, oh, is that yeah, for, for Alex? I wanted to go to Alex, I think. Yeah, I look. Basically, I mean, my I I I don't have any quibbles with with Mark's account about this. You know, there were look there there were there were multiple compromises at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. One was a compromise between small and large states, and that's what produced, uh, in effect, the Senate. 
uh, which was not the original. You know, I mean, the Senate with two two senators per per state. I mean, that was the compromise between small and large states. And then there was a then there were compromises, or there was a key compromise between slave states and free states. And that compromise was the uh, the odious three fifths clause, uh, which would count. Slaves, or, or actually, you know, they don't use the word slave in the Constitution. They refer to as other persons, uh, but that, but that uh, they would count three fifths towards representation, and thus towards uh, the number of seats you got uh, in the House. So those were those were two core compromises. Arguably, they were necessary for the convention to end. You know, with some kind of agreement and with some kind of plan, um, folks might well have walked out. But whether those compromises have served us well uh, is is a is a different issue. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we when we talk about the Senate and you know whether this is sort of minority captured by population, whether the minority of the population has, has captured power in the Senate. I want to ask you both about this because I hear this all the time. We're not a democracy, we're a republic. And I have long suspected that what people re- really mean by that is that we're not a democracy, we're a federation. And by that, they mean states' rights and each state having a certain weight power. And that does mean that sometimes minority rule is valid and we're to live with it. But do you think I'm right about that? Mark? Well, I think, I think you might be, I think you might be right in what people mean when they say that. Um, but I don't, I don't necessarily think there's a whole lot of merit to it. And, and, and in the interest of full disclosure, you know, as you probably know from some of our previous appearances in here, I do, you know, think there's a certain amount of weight that we need to put on um, you know, kind of state representation in what ended up coming out of the constitutional convention. But this isn't one of those areas. I mean, it's pretty clear that if you wanted, um, you know, a collection or a deal among the states, that that was the Articles of Confederation, right? That the Constitution, as Patrick Henry, much to his dismay, pointed out, was speaking in the name of we the people. And if you're going to speak in the name of we the people, a popular sovereignty, and you're going to subscribe to the position of one person, one vote, which, of course, the founders didn't, but Supreme Court has said we need to since the 1960s. It's hard to square the Senate with that. And again, I, I think Alex is right it, that it would have been very difficult, at least in my opinion, to see the Constitutional Convention doing anything other than dissolving if there hadn't been some kind of a deal cut to pacify the small states in the legislative design process. And Okay, so I get that. That doesn't mean that it's, you know, as he pointed out, has it served us well is a separate question. And I increasingly think the answer to that is is no, it is not serving us well. Um, to the point where if someone were to give me a, a blank check and say, okay, you get one reform, um, what would it be? Reforming the Senate in terms of and getting rid of the equal representation by state would be, I don't know if it'd be at the top of my list, but it'd be up there for consideration. Hmm. You want to comment on that, Alex? And that this business about federation versus republic and minority capture, and that's what comes when you have a federation. Talk about that. Right. Well, well first, first, let me let me agree with Mark. I mean, I have when asked this question, I have numerous times if, if I could do one reform or what are my top cluster of reforms, um, making the Senate proportional to population would be 
would be would be way up there. Um, even even again, in the wake of my book about the electoral college, people have said, "Is that the foremost reform?" And I probably would say that I think they were reforming the Senate um, is is something that I would give even higher priority to. Um, I think that this 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 issue of republic versus democracy um, is something of a red herring. If you look back at the language of the fathers and the language of the 19th century, et cetera, um, that language was evolving, for one thing. OK, I mean, democracy, the word democracy in the 1780s still had a, something of a negative connotation of mob rule, et cetera. But that was very quickly changing and shifting um, so that, you know, by, by the 1820s, 1830s, you know, the leading party, we call, you know, we call ourselves the democracy. So um, I think when this distinction is raised in the 21st century, uh, the way I hear that distinction is people saying, oh, it's not so important to have everybody vote or to have all votes count equally. I think that saying we're a republic, not a democracy um, is a way of saying, well, we don't have to be too worried about those democratic values that you're harping about. Um, so I, 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 see, I see it in those terms. Yeah. Can I follow up on that, and I, I couldn't agree more that, that that distinction is a red herring. I, I absolutely agree with that. And, and even, even if you want to press some significance of distinction between a democracy and a republic, right? I mean, really, we're still talking about popular sovereignty. It's just whether you're going to have the people choosing directly, right? It's like an Athenian style democracy, or whether you're having the people select someone to act on their behalf, right? Which is, you know, a small R republic or a representative democracy. What matters then if you say, okay, we're a representative democracy or a small R republic, are you really saying, and Alex pointed this out, are you really saying that all people shouldn't have an equal say in who they get to choose to represent them, right? It's a republic, but really, we want a republic where everybody has an equal say in choosing who their representatives are, don't we? And if you don't, then that's really the, the, a different question. But let's make sure we're talking about what we're really talking about. Well, I, and I suspect they do mean the latter. But, you know, uh, we're going to take a little station break here. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Mark Brewer, professor and interim chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Alex Kazar, Matthew W. Sterling, Jr., professor of history and social policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Our topic today is small state bias in the federal government. Is this democracy? This show is pre-recorded. You send your comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put democracy form in the subject line. So the Senate, right, um, Cooper State, if it wasn't that great to begin with, do you think it's getting worse because of shifting demographics, Alex? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a very elaborate answer, but I think, um, look, I, look I, 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 think it, I think it is getting worse. And, um, and, I think, and, I, and I think we have to... You know, I think it is it is paralyzing a number of areas of 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 policy, you know, and I think that and, you know, we've been muddling through for the last 20, 30 years. But uh, um, I think it really is uh, contributing to a paralysis and a polarization, um, both that are 
um, that are eating away at you know at at our institutions. I mean, and you know, and one one way to think about this, one way you know, I sort of say to my students is that you know, if you were dividing, if you were designing um, a constitution or a program of government, a blueprint of government uh, for a new country. You might or might not decide to have a bicameral legislature. That would be, you know, you know, decide to have two branches or, you know, or just one branch. But you would never in the world decide to have one branch of that legislature where the representation was so skewed where two senators could represent, you know, 600 or 800,000 people. I forget what the population of Vermont is, but, you know, but it's it's something less than a million. And the same thing for, for you know, for California, which would be the sixth largest country in the world. And, or in, in its economy, but see, you, you would never do that. You would say no. And I don't, you know, I, I think that now we, you know, the changing it in, in our constitution would be very difficult, but uh, we have to recognize that this is just not working. Yeah. Now, um, you know, the, the electoral college and the popular vote have split, I guess, what, five times in our history, twice in my lifetime. Um, Mark, do, do you think because of these demographic shifts that that's going to start happening more often? The demographic shifts you describe certainly increase the likelihood that it'll happen. I think what... Well, what actually, really you is, could describe the democracy shifts for our listeners because maybe we didn't... Well, just, just the fact that we're, we've increasingly are being marked by a, a rural-urban divide in our in our partisan divisions, which hasn't always been there in American politics. It has in some periods and hasn't been in others. I mean, I can, I can remember not all that long ago that the American national election studies determined or decided in their great wisdom that the type of community that you lived in was no longer a worthy question of asking. And so they dropped it, uh, which was dismaying to say the least. But right now, you know, this, this rural urban uh, divide politically has become incredibly relevant. Um, you know, we've been officially, and we can quibble with the Census Bureau's definition of urban, but we've been officially an urban nation since the 1920 census. That trend has continued unabated, right? You know, you rural areas. More people live in cities than. Yes, in, in officially metropolitan areas by census definition, which is not great, but it's what we work with. Um, and that's continued. Rural areas continue to empty out, but because of. The Electoral College, which again, the way it's it's exacerbated greatly by the Senate, we're we're giving political clout in some ways to land rather than people. And given the current urban rural political partisan division, that exacerbates that for sure. Um, if we were to go back to a situation where there's no urban rural split in voters, then it doesn't get rid of the problem, but it lessens it. Um, I don't know that we're going back there anytime soon. What do you think about that, Alex? Is it uh, shifting demographics and that means political characteristics as well as where people are actually living? Are those dynamics going to exacerbate this problem as we continue into the 21st century? Well, I think they already are. Um, and I think we we also let me add to what Mark said. The urban rural division is also an ethnic and racial division. Okay, most African Americans and uh, and Latinx, um, I, you know, are, tend to be in metropolitan areas, are much or certainly much are much more likely to be there than, than you know than, than in rural areas. So there's that tension. Uh, 
you know, coexisting. I mean, one of, you know, the some of the very fine studies that have been done trying to understand, you know, white rural or small town conservatism really have found that, uh, you know, uh, that that there's a politics of resentment um, and some, you know, and a notion that these new arrivals or racially different people are getting all the attention, um, you know, in the cities and you know, that certainly something like that is playing out in Wisconsin, where one of the really fine studies of this was done. And, you know, and, and you see it elsewhere as well. So we have we, we have a number of different, you know, you have class, ethnic, in some places, maybe even uh, religious differences, as well as differences in sort of the environments in which people live and the immediate problems facing people in those environments. And you've got potentials for real clashes, all of which in a well-functioning democracy, should be negotiable in the political system. I mean, governing is in part, you know, figuring out how to balance those interests uh, and how to allocate resources in such a way that's fair. But that doesn't seem to be happening quite well right now. I mean, do you think it's true, Mark, that, um, I don't know quite how to put this, but it, it seems in a way like movement conserv- conservatives and small government conservatism, it feels like that is actually sort of against the kind of investments in rural area development that would help rural areas. I, we asked the question, if if small states or rural states have all this power, why aren't rural states feeling happier? Well, that's a, that's an important question. And I think, you know, the jury is still out on that. But But one, you know, one group of commentators and scholars would say that that the reason why small states don't get the policy benefits that their disproportionate influence would seem to entitle them to is that the party right now that is doing the most to appeal to these small state constituencies, the current Republican Party, which as Alex pointed out, that has not always been the case, but it is right now, is doing what it's really doing is paying lip service uh, to these kind of rural concerns, but not delivering on them. But de- you know, instead delivering for um, you know big business and corporate interests that really are working to the detriment of many uh, small town rural communities across the United States. And if you were to go back into the 19th century, I think Alex was alluding to this earlier. And you look at you know small town rural America. You know, that was the hotbed of the People's Party or the Populist Party. If you look, go look at the Omaha platform, uh, you're not going to see anything that even remotely looks like movement conservatism. Uh, it's going to look very different than that. So uh, that that's one answer. Not everybody would agree with that. Um, I would tend to agree with that. Hmm. So, I mean, if what this all boils down to between the Supreme Court and the gerrymandered House and the bias in the Senate is that we have sort of minority rule of the federal government. How sustainable is that over the long term? Like what sort of historical comparisons in the U.S. and to other countries can we draw out of how can we keep having democracy under those terms? Am I even asking the right question? Well, I, I think it's the right question. It's just I'm I'm kind of struggling with how to answer it. I mean, I'm an Americanist, so in terms of if I'm going to reach outside of the U.S. for a for a comp, I'm going to struggle. Um, the one the one comparison I maybe could come up with is within the United States, our state governments throughout the 19th and 20th century, where state legislatures were overwhelmingly malapportioned, right, purposely 
to give benefits to rural areas at the expense of the, the rapidly growing cities. And so you would have a situation like New York State, for example, with you know New York City having a preponderance of the state's population, but the New York State legislature being overwhelmingly controlled by rural interests where not that many people live, because this was pre-Baker versus Carr, one person, one vote. And eventually the, the tensions within a lot of those state governments, um, I don't want to say they became untenable, but it resulted in some really bitter partisan conflict that was rooted in this this unequal representation. Um, You asked if I think it's sustainable, this kind of minority control of the federal government, which I think we do have to a a large extent. I increasingly, if you were to ask me that question 30 years ago, I would have I would have probably said it's a concern, but it's a relatively low burner level concern. Uh, today, I, I have a very different view of that. I increasingly see it as a front burner, you know, pot starting to boil over concern. And I worry increasingly that it's not um, it's not sustainable and, and would hope that we can start to take actions very soon to do something uh, to address that and kind of bring the temperature down a little bit. You want to add on to that, Alex, at all? Um, only to add my concurrence. I mean, and, and, and my sense also that uh, the problem has gotten worse. You know, one of the reasons American institutions have endured um, and uh, despite their very considerable imperfections is that, you know, we've been a country rich in natural resources, happily remote from, you know, happily having some oceans between us you know, and some other areas of conflict. We live in a smaller world, right? Um, and we live in a world where the extent of interdependence among countries and across countries um, is mounting every year, even though I think that we're starting to see a reaction against that, against the kind of faith in globalization that was so widespread for 20 or 30 years. I mean, now, now suddenly we're building everything in the United States, but but meanwhile, the Chinese are building factories in Mexico to take advantage of NAFTA. But, you know, I think that I don't think we can assume that the natural bounty that was there for the United States is going to keep making it possible for us to remain polarized and not seriously address issues. Um, you know, the issues of inequality in this country are extreme. Um, they are more extreme than they were 20 or 50 years ago. They are more extreme than they are in, in other adv- advanced countries. That's a seri- That's a very serious issue which has to be addressed, and minority rule right now is not going to is not going to you know permit that to be addressed. And we could go down a list of other very very serious issues and and say the same thing. So yes, I'm very concerned uh, about this. And and the other thing which we do know from history and from a comparative record is that when minorities rule and their rule gets challenged, the upshot almost always is violence. They double, um, they double down, yeah. They double down, and, the, and you know, and both sides armed. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, there's, not a, there's not automatically a kind of, a, you know, peaceful scenario there. You know, it may not be, uh, it, it may not be sitting down and reasoning with, you know, Sort of Chuck Schumer sitting down with Mitt Romney, uh, you know, to to negotiate something. It um, it may be that he'll have to negotiate with George Santos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're too.
tuned to the Democracy Forum at WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Spain. Our guests this afternoon are Alex Cazar, Matthew W. Sterling, Jr., Professor of History and Social Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, and Mark Brewer, Professor and Interim Chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine. This program was pre-recorded on February 15th. No listener calls are be being taken right now. Uh, I want to spend... Um, the next segment of our, show, of our show talking about opportunities for reform. And I hear you saying, Alex, that these may not be so easily done, you know, each side holding on to what they've got ever harder and harder. But let's just take one or another and see if there's an, an opportunity for us to move forward. So first I had down here, given that the federal courts will not intervene in partisan gerrymandering, what can we do to break up the kind of extreme examples we see in places like Wisconsin and North Carolina? Mark well, or Mark or Alex, go first. Well, let, let, let me let me go first and then hand it over to Mark. I mean, yeah, you know, one. I mean, I I think one thing we can do, and we need to think about very seriously, is about changing our electoral systems for legislatures um, from first, from single member district first past the post to some kinds of proportional system. And, you know, and obviously I know this has been a, you know, a live discussion um, in Maine. And, and I actually, I, I happen to live in the city, Cambridge, Mass, which has a, which, you know, which uses PR as an electoral system, although we do it in a singularly inept way, but that's, 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 um, that, that, that's our problem. But I think that one of the virtues there may you know there's interesting debates about uh proportional representation or not but certainly one virtue is that it, it doesn't altogether remove but it greatly reduces the incentives towards partisan gerrymandering and anyone who's witnessed what happens to the drawing of districts in state you know every, every 10 years i think would welcome that yeah so that's one that's one thing you want to suggest another mark well, I think I think one way to get at it, you know, we can leave. You know, I think the debate for me, the debate between you know, first past the post, single member districts and and uh, multi member uh, PR districts, I think is one was too big to, to dig into at the end of the program. But one way to deal with this cleanly, I think, would be to to take gerrymandering head on, right? And just and just let's just stop allowing the drawing of district lines for the advantage of one party over another. And there are some states that have done this, right? They turn it over. To an independent, nonpartisan commission, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you have to allow the legislatures to draw their own district lines and let parties do this. Um, that could be easily done. And now, are the people who would have to do that are advantaged by the current system? So the incentive for them to change things is very small. But when I say it could be easily done, I don't mean politically easy. I mean it could be yeah. done under the current rules as they stand, right? Yeah. And that would be one to start with. What, if, what about eliminating the Electoral College or the alternative, the National Popular Vote Compact? What do you think about that, Alex? Well, I do think that we should be working towards eliminating or dramatically changing the the Electoral College. I, I was an early supporter of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which um, your listeners may or may not be familiar with, but it's a way of trying to circumvent the Electoral College by keeping the Electoral College. And I, I am no longer a supporter of it. I think that it is idea bound to go up in flames and, gonna, and is consuming a lot of reform energy 
um, even though it's a dead end. I mean, my, sim- my, my the simple, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is a compact among states. States say they will join the compact. It will become operational when there are enough electoral votes um, at stake. And the principle is that you, you a state will cast its electoral votes for the winner of the national popular vote, not the state's votes. Even if it, if it sort of got past a number of constitutional challenges on the way, once it was in operation and once a single state passed its electoral votes for somebody who had lost the election in that state, that state would pull out of the compact and then the compact would not be in place the next time. And you're just making a, an unduly complicated electoral college system much more uh, much more complicated. Fair disclosure. You know, my, own, my, own, my own preference, obviously, is we are maybe not so obvious, it would be for a national, just a regular national popular vote. Right. Um, there, there is a compromise position that I think people should think of that may be more politically um, manageable, which is to divide the electoral votes of each state proportionally, not by district, actually, which involves can involve gerrymandering, but so that the electoral votes are distributed in accordance with the percentage of the popular vote that each candidate received. That would eliminate many of the problems caused by the Electoral College. What do you think about that, Mark? And fair disclosure, the League of Women Voters is supporting the National Popular Vote Compact. Right. And, and and I believe that I was on a program where we discussed this. So in, in the interest of full disclosure, I've, I've, I'm a longtime opponent of the National Popular Vote Compact, uh, and I've offered testimony to the Maine state legislature uh, against joining said compact. But um, so obviously I'm not supportive of, of, the, of that. I think it, the constitutional barriers are virtually guaranteed that it would be declared unconstitutional um, on at least two and maybe three grounds. I think if you want, if you want to get rid of the electoral college, I think the easiest, cleanest way to do it, as Alex pointed out, is just go to a straight national popular vote, get rid of the electoral college and say the vote for president is going to be a, a legitimate national popular vote. But that um, really I am, has obstacles of its own, doesn't it? You have to amend I the constitution, which is a, right, which is a pretty big obstacle. But I think I think you could, if for me, if if the really you think the enemy is the is the electoral college, and let's instead of making a, a convoluted system even more convoluted and probably something that's going to get tossed by the courts anyway, let's go ahead and just make it nice and clean, right, in a way that everybody can understand. I do find the middle ground that Alex uh, that Alex described kind of a. a an appealing one because it does one of the reasons why I'm I'm a little reluctant to just completely get rid of the electoral college is I do think that you know the part of what the founders had in mind there was preserving some kind of a state role in the selection of the nation's chief executive and and I'm sympathetic to that to to a some degree and I think the compromise that Alex put out there does preserve that while still allowing for a much more um, fair and equal um, division of voting power in terms of population. So I think I think that's something that really should be seriously examined. What about DC? You know, if I could just chime, if I could chime in on you know on my own idea. I mean, one of the other virtues of the, of that compromise idea is that it might encounter less resistance from small states um, who would. Who would retain their numerical advantage? Um, you know the the some the slight advantage that they get in the electoral college. But would that pass state by state? You could do it state by state. There's nothing that would stop. The historical record um, suggests that 
it'd be very hard to do state it would be very hard to accomplish because people don't want to go first states don't want to go first and surrender what modicum of extra power they get from having winner take all so, so they have to go at once so yeah i mean that that's i think that that's the only way it's really going to happen so does that mean federal legislation you could amend the you could amend the con- the federal constitution, right? That's the other oh, way. Then we're back to the electoral abolishing the electoral college again. Well, you, 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 wouldn't, you wouldn't abolish the electoral college. You would just you would add an an element to it that ex- makes explicit how states have to um, award their their delegates um, as a result of their process. And if and Alex alluded to this earlier too. If you go back and look at first two or three decades, states were kind of all over the place and how they um, how they divvied up their electoral um, votes. So um, right now, states are pretty much free to do what they want on that. But that doesn't mean you couldn't amend the federal constitution to change that. But you can see why people have very little enthusiasm for amending the U.S. Constitution in this regard, because they just think it's impossible. Like, why waste your effort? It's not going to happen. You can see why people think that, right? Oh, it's it's true. It's difficult, right? I mean, we've got we've got twenty eight amendments. You know, we got ten all at once. One is for booze, the other or no booze, and we put booze back in. You know, so it's it's <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, it's hard to do for sure, and harder now because of the very problem that we've been talking about this whole hour. Um, what do you think about DC statehood? I mean, that's like just a tiny little two extra senators, but how possible and effective might that be, Alex? Well, I, I think it's, I mean, you know, from my own partisan perspective, I think that would be a good thing and, and you know, it would be effective. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. I, you know, I mean, it's it's been, you know, it's been on the drawing boards for many decades now. Um, and I do not think, you know, I just do not think it's going to happen. I think that um, the political forces arrayed against it are, you know, are too great. And again, it would require an amendment. Um and I just DC statehood would require a constitutional amendment. Yes. Oh, I, I didn't know that. I thought that was federal. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm not sure. Maybe. Um, well, that's an interesting, interesting question because you know the, the the capital district is outlined, right? And so, would the process of DC statehood be different than other federal territories that have applied for statehood in the past? That's that's a that's a really good question, Anne, and I don't. I'm not 100 percent sure of the answer on that, so I'm not going to I'm not going to speculate that on the risk of making myself look silly. Um, and that's there, a I, know I know there is federal legislation pending um, and the proponents of it believe it can be done without a constitutional amendment um, and that, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure on Maine's two senators to co-sponsor that bill in the past. I think it actually did pass in the House in the last legislature and failed in the Senate. So I, I think there's little chance it will pass in this House, but I think there is still activity trying to bring the Senate along. So that, that I can, you know, clarify that a little bit, I guess. Well, so we well, kind of... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead, Ann. Go. Well, I was just going to wrap up. We kind of brought ourselves to a very discouraging moment where there are several good reforms on the table that nobody thinks can pass. So I want at this point to give you a minute, Mark, to summarize your thoughts about this conversation, and then we'll give Alex a chance. Well, I mean, I, I think you're right. It is a little bit discouraging because I think in many of the reforms that that at least 
for me, I think are imperative. I think that the chances of them actually being enacted are very, very slim, right? And I do, I, I continue to, to come increasingly to the conclusion that the Senate is a serious problem for us. And I don't, short of amending the Constitution, right, I, I don't see a way around that unless states voluntarily kind of give up equal representation in the Senate, which of course states aren't going to do. So if I want to look at something that might happen, that it, that's more easily done, you know, maybe I turn my attention to the filibuster. Is that going to solve all of the problems? No. Is it, could getting rid of it make things better? Think so. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not, I'm even not a hundred percent sure of that, but I can't say I'm, I can't say that I'm overly optimistic because I really, I would want to focus on the dramatic unequal representation that is produced by the Senate. And that's just such a very difficult problem to practically address, right? Theoretically, we know it's a problem. Fixing it is very, very difficult. Go ahead, Alex, wrap us up here. Well, I guess I, I, I certainly can't deny that, 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 that there's been a pessimistic tenor to this conversation <laughs> as, as we diagnose a variety of ills and then say, oops, we're not, you know, it's going to be hard or nearly impossible to, to remedy them. But I think that, I think we have to keep in mind the processes through which change has happened in the past and could happen um, in the future. For one thing, even with constitutional amendments, um, it can depend on there being a handful of people in Congress and maybe sometimes one person who is doggedly willing to go at an issue for five years, 10 years or, you know, or longer if they believe that to be the case. You know, Birch Bayh, who actually got several amendments through uh, constitutional amendments through, you know, through the Senate, you know, worked on electoral college reform from the mid 1960s to the, you know, to the late latter 1970s. And I think we also do have to remember that Positions and stances do change. Um, again, if I can use the Electoral College case, because you know, uh, I, I, I know that one, you know, in considerable detail. A proposal for a national popular vote in the Senate in the 1950s got about 15 votes. But at the end of the 1960s, it had it had 57 votes. Now, that wasn't quite enough to get over the hurdle. But there's a big difference between 15 and, you know, in the high and the high 50s. That's a real change. Those changes in position can happen. They're by no means guaranteed to happen. And they're only going to happen if people who favor reforms inside and outside of, you know, elected office keep the pressure on. The League of Women Voters is essential to, for uh, for doing this, as are a number of other reform organizations. All right. Taking that plug for the League of Women Voters as our final comment of the day, I'll say that's our show. Thank you to our guest this afternoon, Mark Brewer, Professor and Interim Chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Alex Kazar, Matthew W. Sterling, Jr., Professor of History and Social Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League's website is LWVME.org for more information, articles, and resources about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series. Subscribe to our podcast at LWVME.org. Thanks for listening. See you next month.